chapter 1. We're reading verses 4 through 17. Let's pray. Our God, cause us to see your truth, cause us to see your salvation, cause us to see Jesus Christ and his peace and his peacemaking efforts on the cross and by, this, by his spirit. Help us to see these things in this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jonah 1, 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps... The God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? But the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We don't mind turning the tables on someone, so long as the tables are not turned on us. If we can stick it to someone, we just might poke. But if someone pokes us, we cry foul. We say that's unfair. It's unjust. Parents who have more than one child every week perhaps hear something like this. One from child one says, he hit me, dad. Do something about it. And child two pleads for mercy. No, dad, you don't understand. He, he made a mad face at me. Dad is not surprised to learn just five minutes later from child two, he hit me, Dad, do something about it. And then child one now pleads for mercy, no, Dad, you don't understand, he, he stuck his tongue out of me. Dad says, so you wanted mercy, but then you dished out anger in return. This is, this is us. 
This is us as, as weak, imperfect saints. We can dish it out, but we can't take it. We, we want justice for them, mercy for us. How does God deal with his Israelite and disobedient prophet? Well, remarkably, he uses Gentiles to show grace. Now, we began our five-part series in Jonah last Lord's Day evening, and we saw Jonah, the prophet, in flight. We saw him leaving God's presence, at least trying to leave God's presence. And we noticed, by contrast, the prophet, uppercase P prophet, Jesus Christ, firmly fixed to the divine mission. And now this evening, we pick up again in chapter 1, the first chapter here, and we see Jonah running for dear life. Last week, we learned that when the prophet flees, there is no hope of salvation for the world. But this week, we see that the problem is worse. It's even deeper than that. It's far worse than Jonah imagined. It's far worse than we imagine. When the prophet flees, the world is used to shame the prophet. And this sounds like a hard word, because it is. It's a hard lesson for all of us, not just for Jonah, the prophet. And by this hard lesson, we see that God brings grace to his people through the back door from a place that we'd likely not expect. Now, we saw last time the cost of Jonah's disobedience, that he, he literally paid the fare to leave the presence of God. Now, he's paying not just the fare, but he's, he's paying the price of disobeying by receiving divine discipline, God's fatherly chastisement. We see in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, there is a contest of buts here in verses 3 and 4. God, only one chuckle on that one, okay. It was intentional, but I anticipated it given the crowd here. So, in verses 3 and 4, we see that God told Jonah to go, but Jonah rose to flee. And now that Jonah had fled, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind. The God of creation and the God of Jonah is now disciplining his disobedient prophet son. Jonah shouldn't have run away to begin with. We know this. And the Lord will bring Jonah back to himself. And he does this through discipline, a hard lesson not only for Jonah, but for all of us to learn. The wind, the sea, the mighty tempest, and even the inanimate ship were all instruments in God's hand as he showed Jonah who was sovereign. And how does Jonah respond initially? Does he do an about-face? As soon as he faces Tarshish and then just the slight hint of discipline, he turns back and says, okay, sorry. He doesn't do that. He digs in. He runs as far away as possible. He doesn't receive this discipline initially very well. And so there's a contrast between the Gentiles and Jonah. Remarkably for the Gentiles, and shamefully for Jonah, these Gentiles respond better than Jonah does. Do you see that? There is real despair in the hearts of the Gentiles here in verses 5 through 10, at 
this moment, these Gentile mariners do not know the Lord in any kind of saving way. The Romans, one kind of knowledge of God implanted in them that remains. That can never be taken away. But they don't know Yahweh as their Lord and as their Savior, as their Redeemer. Not yet, anyways. But they know something's going on. What they are experiencing is otherworldly. They know that someone, some higher power, is doing something terrifying. This chaos to them comes from an unknown source. Even the ship that is personified here threatens to break under the weight of God's hand. And so what do all the men do here? They all take to their knees in a kind of foxhole effort, crying out to their own gods. And they're thinking, what did I do to anger my God? Or what did I fail to do to anger my God? And so each one is crying out to his own God, mercy. Whatever I did, find it out and, and forgive me, please. There's real despair in these Gentiles' hearts. But there's also real peace in Jonah's heart. Not to say that there should be good peace at this point, but there is peace in his heart. While the Gentile mariners are full of despair, Jonah's heart is full of peace. Look at the second part of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. He was fast asleep. Everyone is panicking. Everyone is fearing. Everyone is crying out to his God. Everyone except for Jonah. The waters outside are raging, but the waters of Jonah's heart remain calm and unstirred. The load of the ship is being lightened by the moment, but Jonah's heart knows no load, knows no burden. The great wind or breath of the sea is restless, but Jonah is breathing peacefully below. These mariners are frantically crying out to their gods, but Jonah has no petitions to offer. The only God that is. It is a sad contrast. Charles Simeon says, We wonder that Jonah was able to close his eyes in sleep when death was apparently so near at hand. But his insensibility shows us the true effect of sin, which hardens the heart and stupefies the conscience brutalizes the soul, and renders it indifferent to all that concerns its eternal welfare. With eyes of faith, with, with real reverence, we do wonder why Jonah would be so insensible to God's discipline. But that's what sin does. When you are comfortable in your sin, the righteous terrors of God's discipline don't faze you. Your ears have a stopper in them, and you don't hear God's word. You don't hear the real threat, the real warning. And there are many warnings for believers. Just read the book of Hebrews. There are many godly warnings to return to the Lord. But Jonah isn't hearing them at this point. And that is a very difficult place to be, a very hard place for that heart to be, to be so hard-hearted it doesn't op that it isn't open to the softening uh, work, the shaping work of God's hands, God who is the, the potter. 
There's also a contrast of reverence in these Gentiles versus what's going on in Jonah's heart. There is a real reverence displayed in these mariners. They are struck with awe, we're told. They are afraid. And later in the text, we see them fearing the Lord exceedingly. We see them making sacrifices, not to their own gods, but to Yahweh. And we see them making vows even. They're making promises to their God, or to to God. But Jonah's reverence, although it is present, was barely in kernel form. Verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you say, you fear the Lord? Show us. (laughs) I think we have reason to challenge him on that confession. Martin Luther knows what he's talking about here when he distinguishes two kinds of fear. He says, Jonah says that he fears the God of heaven who is angry with him and from whom he is trying to escape, but the true fear of God is reverence for him. You guys know Martin Luther devoted his life to being a monk because he thought that God was going to strike him dead. He thought that a thunderstorm was going to do him in, and he thought that God was so angry with him. He knew the terrors of his own, of the law, given his own sinfulness, his own unholiness. But God is not, he doesn't want us to have that kind of terror in our hearts for him. Yes, we must understand the weightiness of our sin and the holiness of our God, but he doesn't want us cowering in a corner trying to avoid him, trying to flee from him. That's a, a slavish fear, a slavish fear uh, that we don't that we don't want to display, that God doesn't want us to display. But instead, God wants us to display a, a godly reverence, an awe for him, a, a fear of the Lord that actually draws us to him. He says, yes, I know that his law is righteous. I know that he is holy. I know that I am not, but he has made a way to bring me to himself. Not to flee from him, but to come to him. And to worship him, that's the kind of awe, that's the kind of reverence that God wants all of us to have. Our level of reverence then affects our level of repentance. These Gentiles, you see, they make quick work. They they get to work of uh, trying to figure out how all this happened. They're asking people questions. They're They're pleading with their own gods. They want to know how this can be remedied. They even have to wake up the sleeping prophet. Do you see how ironic that is? The one who's supposed to have vision, the one who's supposed to have sight, the one who's supposed to tell the people the way, is asleep. He's in darkness and is blind. And they say, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing sleeping at a time like this, when chaos is all around you, when we are about to die? Do you not care that we're about to die? And notice he doesn't come out with it at first. And so what do they do? They, they all cast lots, which is just an, an ancient way of making decisions and coming to know who is responsible for a task or who is to blame for some sin. But even here, we must always keep in mind the truth of Proverbs 16.33, that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. Now you can throw those dice on the floor. They turn to whatever the number 
the number of dots there are because of God's providence, because of God making it so. And so once these mariners realize that Jonah is the one to blame, they ask about his origin, they ask about his identity, they ask about his God. And by knowing who Jonah is, by knowing where Jonah comes from, by knowing what he does, they can then know the God that he serves. And if they can know the God that he serves, hopefully they can pacify this angry God if he is the one who is wreaking havoc in the sea. All this chaos, all this watery judgment, all this divine discipline is coming upon them because of this one man. And they do what everyone in their position ought to do. They cried out for deliverance. Read with me verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They were even willing to be the instruments in God's hand to hurl Jonah overboard. Truly repentant, they expended their efforts in serving God and in being preserved by God. But by contrast, Jonah's is at best a very partial repentance. And we have to note, as we just read in verse 9, that Jonah does say that he fears the Lord. He does eventually come clean. They ask him how to remedy the situation, and he says, throw me overboard. So he offers his life. He submits to the penalty. He knows that the raging waters will not calm down until they swallow him up and are satisfied with a full stomach of justice. The final contrast here is found in verse 13. Nevertheless, the, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So the final contrast here relates to their view of grace versus Jonah's appreciation of grace. They are gracious. They are compassionate even. They try to row even after they learn of his sin. Even after they learn that he is the one to blame, they don't immediately just cast him out. They row, and they row hard, trying to get to land. And they ask of Yahweh that they not perish. They even try to save everyone, but they couldn't. And so they show more compassion, more grace than Jonah does here. Jonah shows little to no grace. In fact, no grace to these Gentiles. He puts them in this spot by fleeing God. You imagine, if, if, if he hadn't gotten on that boat, these Gentiles wouldn't have had a problem. They would have rowed safely from, one, from point A to point B. He put them in that spot. Though in a, in a twist of providence, as God tends to do, they also wouldn't be saved. That doesn't mean Jonah's sin was right. It just means that God's grace is more powerful than Jonah's sin, and that God's wisdom is far greater than Jonah's or ours. And so they show this grace, and he doesn't. This speaks of his heart toward the Ninevites. They don't get grace, just justice. That's what he wants for them. That's what we saw last week. 
He has no thought of the position that he would put the mariners in by disobeying God. And the application point here is that the role reversal of world and church is a grace to the world, but it is a shame to the church. Even though these mariners didn't disobey God by fleeing from him to Tarshish, this does not mean that these men were ultimately innocent before God. You can't say that these men were righteous before God. They were innocent before God. No, as sinners in Adam, they were guilty before God. They were all on borrowed time, weren't they? The truth is, they all deserve to die. Remember, these men were crying out to their own gods. These were pagans. These were idolaters. These were not worshipers of Yahweh, the only Lord that is. So they were headed to hell. Nevertheless, God spared them. Spared them by calming the waters after Jonah was hurled overboard. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that we will see these guys in heaven. And we can ask them more about this episode. One of the many things that we can ask people in heaven. And so there is a grace of the world here. But to the one to whom much is given, much is required. And of course, here I'm speaking of Jonah, speaking of the prophet. There is shame on the prophet when they who need to repent are quicker than the one who calls them to repent. The reaction of these mariners, the reaction of reverence, the reaction of repentance anticipates the response of the Ninevites. And Jesus in the gospel says that the Ninevites will one day judge the scribes and Pharisees for rejecting him. I don't think that's all the Ninevites. It could be the Ninevites in Jonah 3, or it could be some of the Ninevites later down the road in redemptive history that have converted. But they will judge the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who had the Word of God, who were supposed to teach the Word of God, the people of God, and who were supposed to proclaim the way to say Jesus is here, but instead they rejected Jesus. It is a shame when the covenant people of God run away from God or they downplay His grace. Is the church too hardened by grievances that she cannot extend grace to unbelievers? It is a shame when the unbelieving households freely forgive but you have to look high and low in every room of a Christian home to find a bit of grace. A graceless Christian home is an oxymoron, and it is a poor witness to God's loving compassion. It is a shame upon the church when a homosexual community is more welcoming than she. It is a shame upon the church when the world's pundits follow their falsehood more faithfully than the church's preachers do the Word of God today. When we see the world being shown compassion, we rejoice. We should rejoice because we love compassion and we love God, the the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. We love that He has given compassion to us and so we want that for the world. And so we rejoice. 
But let us also examine ourselves when the world is used to point out our deficiencies, when the world is used by God to point out our lack of compassion, our lack of love, our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our division. It's not a good testimony to the church who is supposed to be a witness to the Christ. And so what all this means is that we need the prophet greater than Jonah. Consider the prophet's peace. And not only is there a contrast between the Gentiles and Jonah, but also between Jesus and Jonah. The prophet Jonah knew a peace that was unsettling, at least it's unsettling for us, given his sinful flight from God. It is a terrifying place to be at peace when you're running away from God. His disobedience brought him a peace that fits with his folly, not the one that surpasses all understanding. His body should have been anxious. His spirit should have been restless. He never should have been at peace until he confessed his guilt to God and to these men. And you can see Jonah's descent ever downward as the text moves from heaven above with the Lord hurling the great wind, to the sea, with the Lord stirring up the storm, to the ship, with the boat threatening to break up, to the ship's deck, with the mariners praying and and hurling cargo overboard, and finally, to just below the deck, to Jonah sleeping in fast sleep, breathing peacefully. This is a descent ever downward, and even gets worse, doesn't it? With verse 17, with the Lord appointing a great fish, he is down into the watery abyss, and he's down into the belly of this great fish. And here is a man who had every reason to fear divine discipline, but he was in perfect peace, even as his mind was not stayed on God, because he doesn't trust in God in this moment. So you fast forward to Jesus, and what do we see? We see a man who is in perfect peace. Remember that violent, chaotic episode in the disciples' lives as they frantically rowed their boat in a feeble attempt to get to the shore, very similar to what we see these mariners saying to to Jonah. The disciples say to their teacher, to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? Which, in itself, like, when you consider what Jesus has done, it's mind-blowingly way off base. Like you're running in a totally opposite direction, disciples. Yes, Jesus does care that you are perishing, and that's why he's there. He's there to, to live and to die for you, that you would not perish. But here in this boat, do you not care that we're perishing? What do you mean, you sleeper? You can hear the words to Jonah in the disciples' voices to Jesus. Jesus gets up calmly. He speaks to the wind. He speaks to the sea. Peace. Be still. Shut your mouth. Be quiet. The calm of the Christ brought a great calm to the wind and the sea. And they fast forward to the cross, and here is the God-man at peace before the Father. No one, nothing was going to get in the Son's way from saving the apple of his eye. 
Here is a man who had no sin in himself that he would then fear discipline from the Father, but who took upon himself the sin of the world, and he says to the Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Consider the prophet's peace. Consider the prophet's peacemaking. As the sun calmed the wind and the sea, he has made peace with us and God. He made perfect peace between God and us by allowing himself to be picked up and hurled, not overboard, but upward upon that cross. And unlike Jonah, he feared the Lord. His godly fear of the Father was his food. It was his drink, he says. He feared the Lord, and so he offered his life as a sacrifice in honor of his vows. The mariners cried out, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. But the sea-riding sun cried out, Let them not perish. Here is my life. Lay their guilty blood upon me. Amen. Beloved, we have this peace always. He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the prophet who has come to proclaim peace. And his peace first softens our hearts that were once at enmity with the thrice holy God. And now his peace continues to soften our hearts as he slowly but most definitely sanctifies us day after day. And as we try to run away from God, as we, re- as we sang earlier today, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. As we try to run away from, from God, as we flee, the Savior runs after us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. Beloved, despite what plagues you today, tonight you can rest your weary heads. You can be at peace because God is not your enemy, but is your friend. He is your Father. He is your Savior. You can rest your head because God is perfectly in control of all the affairs of your life, of this church's life. You can fall asleep because God neither slumbers nor sleeps, and He gives to His beloved sleep. You can be at peace because he keeps you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because you trust in him, your rock and your redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you so very much for peace. We thank you that you have marvelous, remarkable ways of bringing grace to people. As we saw with your compassion upon these mariners, that were it not for Jonah's disobedience, they would not have seen your compassion. They would have not converted and praised you. We lament Jonah's disobedience, as Jonah will as well. But we rejoice because of your great compassion, your great grace, your great love for the world, that you gave your only begotten Son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through the Son. Transform us more and more into the image of the Son, we pray. Amen.